Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. We've been in a series for the last couple of weeks, and it is called The Unknown God, but then the un has a strike through it because he is a known God, and God has gone out of his way to make himself known. And so that's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, the way that God has um, uh, gone about making himself known to you and I. Um, I know that there are times in my own life and probably times that you have experienced as well where it seemed like God was like uh, really far off, that there were things about God that seemed kind of mysterious or aloof or maybe just out of reach. And there's a tendency at times for us to, to feel that way and maybe even entertain the idea that, you know, how can I really know for certain who he is and how he feels about me and, and what can I do in regards to that. And so we've been in this series and we began in that first week with the way that God has gone out of his way to make himself known. Uh, to invite us to ask and to seek and to knock, that as we draw near to him, Scripture says that he draws near to us, that he is not hiding himself or keeping himself from us. And then we began to build out some different lenses for us to view God or to have an understanding of him. And kind of the academic term for, for knowing God or studying God is the word theology. And so maybe you're familiar with that or that's something that you've bumped into before, but it just means the study of God. And, and we began to look at the different lenses of theology that we can use to have a good understanding of who God is. And we built this out of the way that Paul was looking to address uh, the people in Athens, particularly the, ph- the philosophers and the academics there with the truth of who God is and the uh, salvation offered in the person of Jesus. And so as we began that first week, we started looking at a few different lenses, and one was natural theology. We spent a whole week on that, talking about natural theology, and that is how can you study God? How can you know God? What can you discover about Him with certainty from just observing the world around us? And natural theology is something that is rooted in the idea of reason and observation. It's something that is rooted in the sciences. And we started to look and discover that contrary to what you and I have been sold as a bill of sale at times, science and faith are not incompatible, that they're not in conflict, that there's actually a place for natural theology to help us understand a a more robust picture of who God is and the way that he would work in the day-to-day to to our lives. And so we started looking at those different sciences and disciplines and the way that they can uh, really not just give us a picture of who God is, but uh, oftentimes they affirm the truths of Scripture Uh, as a result of those studies. And then we moved from there to last week talking about the next lens of theology, and it's called revealed theology. And revealed theology is a way of understanding God or viewing Him or studying God that particularly is concerned with uh, Scripture and spiritual experience. Scripture and spiritual experience. And at really the core of revealed theology is what you and I would say is our Bible. That scripture is at the center of that. And, and this lens, uh, for most of us, would be the lens that we have understood to be under constant critique, really be by the world around us. An unbelieving world, uh, a, a faithless world, would have a high degree of critique 
for God's word or holy writ in general. And then there's even some growing um, uh, theological frameworks. There's growing disciplines of theology that are critiquing the word of God as well. There's some things called neo-orthodoxy and liberal theology that when they look at the higher and lower critique of God's word, they're, they're looking to, to really get to a place where they are removing God from the process as well and trying to land on the idea that the, the, that the Bible itself is just kind of a human work or a human effort to discover who God is. And in, in that, what you have is, is you have kind of the, the switch from the understanding that God is trying to reveal himself to us, that he's going out of his way to make himself known, which is uh, like focused on God's effort to reach you and I. Those other lenses are focused on a human effort to somehow discern God. And so they're, they're approaching it in a backward state, and they're coming oftentimes, if you carry it too far, to some really unhelpful conclusions. And in many of those frameworks, they start to reinforce what you and I swim in as our kind of uh, the, just the water that we swim in, and that is relativism. And I don't know if you've bumped into this as far as something that you've been taught or concepts that you've interacted with, or when I describe it, you'll just say, oh yeah, that seems to be the world that we're living in right now. But relativism means that really whatever you decide is good for you or true for you is, well, that's good for you. Um, and in some popular talk shows, as people would talk about different faiths or things along those lines, there was one talk show host where when they, somebody would affirm kind of their ideology or their view, she would say, well, that's good for you. I'm glad you found what works for you. And that's reaffirming this idea that there is no absolute knowledge, truth, or morality, that it's just really subjective and based on the context and the social construct of what's going on. So relativism really asserts this idea that knowledge, truth, and morality are products of culture and society and that there aren't any real absolutes. That really, if you and I agree that it's good, then it's good. If you and I collectively agree that it's bad, then it's bad. If you and I uh, uh, agree on something and they and them disagree with that, then we just decide that we'll hold our truths in opposite places and we just won't interact and it'll just be fine. It's good for us and so we're going to hold on to it. It means that I or we decide what is or what is not. And that's the water that you swim in. Like that's your every day. If, you, if, you're, if you're in a collegiate setting, if you're in an academic setting, and if you're in the workplace, if you're entering, entering into uh, some type of argument on Facebook, like the, this is the world that you live in, that what you think or what you decide is true gets to be true, and the other person, by just kind of de facto, has to be wrong. And so we're either going to be at odds or we're going to be at a distance, but we're just going to hold whatever we decide to be to be. And it's an attractive, listen to me, it's an attractive thing to fall into. Like, and I watch, I watch believers, I watch pastors, I, I watch leaders fall into this type of a trap because it's very comfortable to have what is affirmed to be what I want it to be, right? If I get to, de if I get to decide what is true, right, or moral, if I get to do that of my own accord, and I decide X, Y, and Z is it, and, and, and that gets to be it, that's an attractive place for me to be. Now, it's a challenge when you hold an opposing view, and that's where things start to go 
in a, in a sideways uh, direction. But for, for the most part, like we would slide into this really, really easy, you know? And I find this even at times at home with my kids where I'm trying to say, hey, this is the, this is the way that it is. And they're like, hmm, is it really the way that it is? I think it's this way, right? And then as parents, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I know, like, no, there's, there's this is the way that it is, and this is the way that it is not, right? That's how it's going to work, and it's my way, the highway, because I said so. Like, we get to play that card as parents once in a while. It doesn't always work, but sometimes. But, like, that, that really is kind of the, the, the world that you and I are living in right now. There was a popular meme um, that's kind of been recirculated over the last couple of years. Uh, and in it, it's a, it's a cartoon, Okay, so in it is a cartoon, and there's two individuals standing on either side of something that is just scripted in the dirt or on the ground, and they're looking at it from two different perspectives. Okay, and what is there is, is a numeral, and on one side, the person is pointing at it, and with certainty, it says in the bubble, six. And then from the other side, from the other vantage, the person is pointing, and with certainty, they're yelling, nine. And there's the problem right? Six, nine, and what is being supposed by the meme is that it's six or nine depending on how you look at it, okay? And this can be helpful to a degree. There are places where when you change your perspective, when you sit in somebody else's place, where you understand a historical or cultural context, where there's contextualization going on, that this is very helpful, but when it comes to an absolute definition of truth, it is not helpful. Because the perspective of the numeral written on the ground is not relevant when it comes to the author of who scripted it. The person who could tell you for sure whether it's a six or a nine is not the one standing on the left or the right saying, this is what I see in my perspective, but whoever put the number on the ground could tell you what it was supposed to be. The author gets to define what it is. And what you might find is that it's not a nine or a six, but it's a lowercase g in one of my little kid's handwritings, because sometimes that's how it works. So the perspective, it, it, just because you have a different vantage or perspective, it doesn't mean that you have a relative truth that is just as true as something else. There are places where perspective can give us a broader appreciation for our differences and for it to help us have a better context for describing and understanding what is accurate. But the one who gets to define the definition of what is written is the author of the one who wrote it. And so, like, neo-orthodoxy, liberal theology, a relativism, when it comes to, like, a, a critique of God's Word, it, it can give kind of some different facets or lenses for viewing it. But when it looks to rewrite or reinterpret what God himself has already said is to be true, that's where we get into some really difficult application and living it out in our lives. So a theocentric view, which would be like a God-centric view— of God's word would be that knowledge and truth and morality are defined in absolutes by not what is written by the one who wrote it. Okay, they're defined by God. And that then in our understanding of that, we have to wrestle out how do we contextualize that and how do we live that out. And so if you start with a, a, a human-centered theological framework, you get really to relativism. 
But if you, get, if you start with a theocentric lens of understanding who God is, that God gets to tell me who he is, I don't get to tell him who I am. That he gets to tell me who he is, and I don't get to tell him who he is. That he's the one who created me in his image, that I don't have the right to recreate him into my own image. That when I get that right, then I have an opportunity for him to be able to speak in truth and to have that lived out in my life. And the, and the challenge is, is as you have these different lenses and they're kind of bumping into the natural theolo- theology and kind of the different expressions of science, you can kind of get into these places where there seems to be uh, debate and things at odds and you get into kind of this intellectual discourse that really is conflict-centric. And, and there is a place, there is a place for intellectual defense of God's Word. There's a place where as you study biology, as you study astronomy, as you study archaeology, as you study history, time and time again in those specific disciplines and the others as well, sociology, that as you begin to get on things that are understood as discoverable, observable, and reasonable truth, they just over and over reaffirm truths in God's Word. It's a, it's a really incredible thing to see and to bear witness to, but there is a a framework, there is a perspective that is even more helpful when it comes to understanding that you can trust God's Word for what it is. And that's the part that I want to address this morning. Like, as we begin to kind of wrestle out knowing God, how can I know for certain that I can trust God's Word to, to give me a good, clear picture of who He is? And one of the best areas... Uh, or arenas or domains of understanding that affirm the truth of God's word is in the sphere of moral and spiritual understanding. In moral and spiritual understanding. There was a theologian in the 1930s, 1940s. His name was Meyer Perlman. And as he was writing about kind of the way that intellectual discourse and defense of, of scripture and truth had its place, and as he gave voice to what he thought was maybe the, the most effective display of the accuracy and the truth and the authority of God's word, this is what he landed on. He said, intellectual defenses of the Bible have their place. So entering into those natural sciences and having those intellectual and learned conversations that uh, are, are bringing about uh, uh, a complement uh, rather than a competition in those arenas, that th- that's helpful. But he says, but after all, the best argument, the best argument of the authority of God's word, the truth of God's word, the best argument is the practical one. The Bible has worked. It has influenced civilizations, it has transformed lives, it has brought light, inspiration, and comfort to millions, and its work continues. And what Meyer Perlman is saying there is that the the most uh, beneficial, the most beneficial affirmation that God's word is authoritative and true is not the arguments or even the... the, um, uh, um, complementing of natural sciences, but it's when you look at a life that has been absolutely transformed, that that is the best affirmation that the Word of God is true and accurate. See, especially in the world that we live in, in a world of relativism, right, where you can just kind of hold your idea, and I'll just hold my idea, and we'll just both say we've got a great idea, even though secretly I don't like your idea. Like that, that we're just going to be in that place that it's good for you, so it's good for you. And so I guess, you know, good for you. 
that instead, that the, the most accurate affirmation that God's word is authoritative and is accurate is when you look at somebody and they are not the same. That they are not the same. Just as a sidebar, man, your, your testimony is really invaluable when it comes to the affirmation of God's truths. And I've shared this at times. My favorite testimonies are when somebody sits across from me and says, Pastor Ben, this is who I used to be. And as they speak about that, it sounds like they're narrating somebody else's life because it's so foreign to the person that you know that you can't reconcile that they're the same person. That's the power of the transformation of salvation in Christ Jesus, where you were, but you are not any longer. And so as we look this morning about kind of the way that God's word begins to give us a perspective, not just on how to make sense of who God is, but to make sense of who we are in the experience of the world that we have. Our, our theocentric view is something that's not just informed by academic discipline, but it's by transformed lives that we can know for certain that God's word is trustworthy. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, as Paul's writing to the church there, he says, we thank God continually because we have received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as human word, but it as it actually is, the word of God, which indeed is at work in you who believe. That when the word of God is applied to our lives and we allow it to do its work in us, that transformation begins to take place in us. And so in God's word, last week we were looking at how God reveals himself in that, that it's his spoken word and then it was written. We talked about how that uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit took place and a little bit about its inerrancy and its infallibility. And so we unpacked that last week. God reveals himself through his word, but this morning I want to apply it to your personal life because it does more than just reveal who God is. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning. God's word reveals truth about us and about the world around us. The Word of God not only gives us a picture of who God is, it, it, it brings us into an understanding of His character and nature that we couldn't get from a natural theological observation, that He supernaturally reveals it through His Scripture so that we would know His love, His holiness, His grace, the plan of salvation, but that at the same time the Word of God exposes us and helps us in sense-making when it comes to the world around us. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to get that out. In just a moment, we're going to begin in Psalm chapter 119. If you've got your smartphone or your tablet, go ahead and open up your Bible app. Lord, we raise our word up to you and just acknowledge uh, the central role that it has in our faith and in our life. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a lens to know you, to see you, to understand you. Lord, that as we see how you've interacted in the lives of men and women of old, that we can anticipate how you would interact with us. Lord, the truths of your word that have shown themselves to be trustworthy and universal throughout human history. Lord, give us a soft heart. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would speak to us through your word today. And give us the courage and leading of the Holy Spirit to act on it, to put it into practice this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 119, verse 105, you're going to bump into a common metaphor that's used in Scripture about itself. 
And so there's a number of different ways that Scripture, uh, uh, God's commands, His statutes, there's a number of different vocabulary words that are used throughout the Bible, and a number of different metaphors. And one of the dominant ones is this idea of a lamp or a light. In Psalm 119, verse 105, it says this, it says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And this isn't the only place that this is affirmed, but over and over in Scripture, this metaphor of light or lamp or kind of a flashlight or spotlight is used to identify what the Word of God does in our lives. And ultimately, what is being described here is that the Word of God illuminates or sheds light on what is true. What is true, what is accurate. And in doing that, the two places that we're going to apply that idea this morning is one is the Word of God sheds light on us. Okay, so we could also say that it sheds light on Him, that He uses that to to display Himself, to show Himself. We talked about that last week, but for our purposes this morning, the Word of God sheds its light on us. It illuminates us. Actually, what it does is it exposes us. And this is why sometimes your interaction with the Word of God is uncomfortable. When you start reading about God's standards and then you start allowing the Holy Spirit to evaluate the way that you're living and you see a misalignment there and you're like, ooh, can I read a different chapter? Right? I mean, most of us, we like to cherry pick our our chapters and verses in Scripture. You know, that's why a discipline of reading through the whole Bible in a year or through several years or something like that can be so helpful because it forces you to bump into the things that you want to shy away from because you'd rather not let the Lord take out the trash. So the Word of God, it, it exposes those things. Really, it, it exposes the misalignment of our life when it comes to the things of God. But more than that, we, we shy away from it because we feel the condemnation. We shy away from it because of the guilt or because of our reluctance at times to want to let those things go or maybe even some embarrassment that is assigned to those things. But when the Bible is, is kind of giving a lens on that, when the Bible is exposing those things in our lives, what it's ultimately doing, and this is a healthy thing, it's making us aware of our need. It's making us aware of our need. What God's Word does is He says, hey, look, this is who I am. And we're like, oh, my mind is blown. And then He says, but this is who you are and where you are lacking. This is where you are and the reality of your great need. This is where you are in relation to where you would have hoped to have been. See, it it makes us aware of our need. It may expose that we're not living up to His standard, right? It, It exposes our sin, right, where we've missed the mark. It also gives exposure to what just sin has done to the world and the places where we were just collateral damage for somebody else's decision or some other systemic problem. But it brings an evaluation of what is true about who you are and in the moment that you're in, and as it exposes that need, at the same time, it gives an opportunity to respond to having that need met. And that's where God's saying, this is who I am, in relation to who we are and what we need, where he shows that he is the one who comes and meets those needs. That I've acted in this selfish way. And now I have to be honest with myself and the Lord about that. And then he comes and doesn't display the same level of selfishness, but shows a humility and a deference 
and a willingness to sacrifice on my behalf. You see that very, very clearly in the person of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And then all of a sudden, my need has a place to be met. And it's outside of myself and my own effort. It's met in the Lord and his person. And I'm drawn to what? I'm drawn to relationship with him. I'm drawn to a right relationship with him where he has said, hey, this is who I am. Come and experience me in right relationship. And I get to move into that place. Ultimately, when we're talking about the Word of God illuminating things in your life or shedding light to that in your life, uh, it, it's highlighting oftentimes our blind spots. I don't know if you've done any work in just kind of growth or development, if you've ever kind of gone through a way of, of, of building or maturing in a, in a specific task or through a, 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 a specific type of capacity. But one of the things that you'll run into in coaching or mentoring or in any of those types of things that have to do with development is the idea of a blind spot. Now, most of us, if I said, hey, do you, un- do you know what a blind spot is? Most of you would just go to driver's ed right? And it's just, the, it's the part where I can't see. And I just, as long as I make a look, then I can see there, right? Now we've got cameras that look out the back. My father-in-law has a camera on his car that somehow shoots up in the air and th- does like a saddle. I don't know what's happening anymore. That's not, I, I learned to drive on a 78 Chevy Malibu classic station wagon. It was all blind spots, just trust me. That, that's how we typically think about that. Okay, but really, blind spots are things that are true of you, your context, your circumstance, that you don't know are true. That's what a blind spot is. And what the Word of God does as a standard of truth, a standard of knowledge, a standard of morality, is as it says, hey, this is true, this is moral, this is right, this is accurate. It gives me something to evaluate things that I have assumed to be true in my life, and now I am able to see like, oh, I've got a blind spot there, right? Some of you have a blind spot when it comes to your humor. You think that you're funny, but you're not, right? Some of us have blind spots when it comes to our romance, right? We think that we're romantic, and then our spouse is like, hmm, not really. You know, I know that you bought me a pink handgun for Valentine's Day, but like just the color pink is not romantic enough. Gives a little bit of context to where we live, right? Out here. But a blind spot is something that is is true of us that we weren't aware of. And God's word works in that way. In James chapter 1, as James is writing to the church, he talks about this and uses the illustration of a mirror. The way that the word of God mirrors ourselves back to us in a way that we can do something about it. And he says this, he says, do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves. So don't just be familiar with God's word to the degree that you can just rattle off chapter and verse and you know a lot about those people and what happened in that storyline or that narrative that you've got a lot of Bible content. He says, don't just listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. See, the word of God is is something that begins to work out transformation in my life as I apply it. And as I partner with the Holy Spirit in that process. And so do what it says. Put it into action. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately and forgets what he looks like. See, the word of God mirrors ourselves back to us. It exposes our blind spots. But we can, we can be exposed to that and be like, no, I'm not interested in that. And we can walk away and we can ignore those truths about us 
And so James says when we don't act on the truth of God's word, the morality of God's word, the knowledge of God's word, that it's like we're being reflected back to ourselves, but we're not interested in the upkeep that's necessary there. But whoever looks, verse 25, intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. See, the, the promises of God, the, the, the blessing that comes from living life the way that God designed it to live is something that's tied to walking that out, not just knowing it. And so the word of God exposes our blind spots, but then gives us an opportunity to respond in a way where we address that issue. Right? So, you know, you're, you think that you're romantic. You're not romantic. You bought your wife a handgun for Valentine's Day, and somehow that didn't work for you. Maybe you have a blind spot, and you should sign up for the marriage conference. That might be helpful for you. You're in luck. It's coming up. Right? There, there's, a, there's a response. There's a, there's a right response that we're drawn to. And the Word of God does that. And ultimately, the opportunity that is given in that moment, you've got, there's a, there's a churchy word. There's a, kind of a, a word that's, that would be more of a, a spiritual conversation, but it's the word repentance. That, that's what the Word of God does to us. It gives us an opportunity to be aware of what is true of us that needs to change, and now I can take a step towards that change. Repentance is that. Now, you may gr have grown up in a church context where when you hear the word repentance, you hear it with a condemning voice and you have a devaluation of yourself and all of a sudden you're spiraling into a place where you don't have value and your identity is something that is suspect. But ultimately, the word repentance isn't this condemning, judgmental finger waving in your face that says that you don't have your life right. Repentance at the root of that word means that your mind has to change. And in changing your mind, you begin to change the activity of your life. And repentance can be something where you're repenting from something that is unhealthy, like sin and an activity in your life. But sometimes we need to repent of unhealthy uh, pictures of our own identity, uh, understanding of who God is. There, there's positive ways that that works out in us as well. And the Word of God rightly exposes the blind spots where we have to need, uh, respond in a way where we repent and change. But the other thing that the Word of God does is not just kind of make us aware of our need and exposes us, okay? The Word of God is helpful in what is called sense-making. So I don't know if, if, if you've heard kind of that terminology before uh, or, or understand what that is, but sense-making is a word that describes how you and I, how people discover meaning and understand what we're experiencing. How do, how do I make sense of what's going on in my life? How do I make sense of this moment, this interaction? How do I, how do I have a deeper understanding of what is true in this or, or what needs to kind of change? Like, how, how do I make sense of what's going on in my life? And we find ourselves in these positions all the time where we're trying to figure out, we're trying to get our footing, we're trying to get our bearings, we're trying to make sense of what just happened. If you've been in a position where you've had a sudden loss, whether that was something that was financial, whether that was something that was relational, or whether you lost a loved one, and, and now you are thrown into this, my whole life has changed, right? How, how do I make sense of that? What do I do with that? If I've got loss, if I've got a deep grief, how, how do I begin to make my way through that? In relativism, you just like flounder, 
and you try to find something that just kind of works in the moment, and if it works, then that's good enough, and if it doesn't work, you just got to keep trying to find something. But then there are principles and processes in God's Word that would say if you would apply it this way, it will lead to healing and wholeness. And ultimately, the way that God's Word is affirmed is when you look at somebody who applied it that way and were led to healing and wholeness. It's the transformed life that's like, oh my gosh, maybe, maybe there's something to that. It's not just academic discourse or intellectual um, discourse or defense. Like it, it, It's applied. When you're trying to make sense of the world right now, when you get on, uh, uh, on your Facebook feed and all of a sudden there's another uh, expression of injustice in the world. There's another place where somebody who was disadvantaged has been taken advantage of. There's been another place where it seems like what is just and fair isn't being applied the same way to all people. That there's the, the, the same issue, the same travesty, and then the same debate and the same conversation that goes nowhere because it's circular and it's politicized and it's just trying to protect what whoever has, has. Like, what, what do you do with that? If justice is relative, then whoever's in charge gets to decide how it works. But if there is an author of one who says, no, this is what is right and just before my eyes, then that changes the conversation. And it helps me make sense. What about power dynamics? There's always somebody who has and somebody who has not, whether it is in, in resource or material or influence or power or authority. Is there a right or wrong way to use those things? Is, is there a right or wrong way for those to be applied? Or if you have the power, do you get to use the power however you want to use the power? And as long as it's something that you believe is right, is it right? Or is there somewhere, some way for us to have a defining line that says, no, that's an abuse. No, that's not, that's not right. See, if you only swim and live in a relativistic understanding, there is no right or wrong. There is no right way to use power. You use power the way that you want to, and as long as you have the might, you have the right, and it's exercised in that way. But then you have somebody like Jesus who comes along and says, hey, if you want to be first, you got to be last. Wait, what? That's different power dynamics. That in Philippians 2, it says that he emptied himself of his divine privilege and humbled himself to death on the cross. What? Man, that, that doesn't seem like power dynamics that I see. Like, what, what is that? See, all of a sudden, the Bible helps us start to make sense of those types of things. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23, again, using this metaphor for lamp or light, for this command is a lamp, this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way of life. When the Word of God is something that I allow to expose what is true of me and to, to, to reveal my blind spots to me and to bring me to a place where I respond in repentance and I begin to walk out the way that God's Word directs life to be lived, that there is life at the end of that, that there is life as a result of that. In Psalm 119, verse 130, it says that the unfolding of your words gives light and gives understanding to the simple. 
that when we allow the Word of God to speak into our context and our experience, that there's a way for us to go about sense-making that aligns us with His plans and purposes for us, and we get to walk into the fulfillment of that in the world. And that transformation of our person affirms the truth and the authority and the accuracy of God's Word. More than our arguments and more than reconciling natural theology and revealed theology, the transformed life the transformed life is the ultimate proof expression of the truth of God's word and as activity in our lives. In Isaiah chapter 48, the Lord says this. He says, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. God reveals himself to us in God's, in, in, in God's word, in his word, but he also exposes ourselves to us and then invites us to live a different way. And when we respond in that way, we move into knowing him better in a personal way and then demonstrating him better to a world around us. Church family, if you would stand, worship team, if you would come forward, we're going to take a few moments to just process this and allow the Lord to bring us to a place of response. You know, the last couple weeks, um, we've been focusing on the centrality of God's word in our understanding of who he is and knowing him in a, in a personal sense. And I want to just give a, 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 a cautionary piece of advice. There is a way for you and I to approach the Word of God where we miss God. See, it, it would be an oversimplification to just say you just need to read your Bible and that's going to be, that's going to do it. And there's a place where, where Scripture is central. The Word of God is living and active. That's what it says of itself. God says that when His Word goes out, that it doesn't return without accomplishing what it would. There's, there's a working of God's Word in your life that does produce effect. But you could also read from front to back. You could give me all of the cultural and societal relevant context or context you could speak to me uh, and, and quote verses, and you could give me the theme from each one. You could know a lot about Scripture and miss Him. There's, all, there's theological constructs right now in academia where they know all the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic, and they know the culture and the context, and, and they've got a whole host of expertise they don't know God. This is a simple little book. It's called Practicing His Presence. It's been in print for a long time, and it just kind of goes through the, the thoughts of a brother Lawrence and a Frank Laubach, two different writers at two different times, who at the heart of what they wanted to do is they just wanted to know if it was possible to live their daily life in a way where they were constantly aware of God's presence in their life and responding to that whether it was something that was even possible. And Brother Lawrence in here said something to me that I just wrote down earlier this week. But he said, almost it seems to me now that the very Bible cannot be read as a substitute for meeting God soul to soul and 
face to face. And without, without suggesting that God's word isn't important, because it absolutely is, without suggesting that God's word isn't powerful, it absolutely is, without suggesting that God's word isn't central, it absolutely is, please don't miss that God's word is meant to draw you to God's face, not to the page. It's supposed to draw you to his voice, not to just what was written. It's to draw you to experience him for yourself, not just to read about how others have experienced him. That lens is supposed to open up the invitation, the opportunity for you to know God personally, specifically, daily, that your life would be transformed and ultimately be the greatest expression of affirmation of the truth of God's word. Lord, we come to you today and we ask that you would give us not just a growing appreciation for your word, but for you as the author. Lord, forgive us for the times where we have come to your word and we've brought our relativistic lens. Lord, it's the water that we swim in. Sometimes we're not even aware of it. And so we'll read your word and we'll try to tell you what it's supposed to mean in our lives instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to do that. And so, Lord, we would repent of that and we would say that we, uh, we have a hunger and we have a desire for your word. But more than that, God, we want to know you. We want to know you. So this week, Lord, as we would take steps to interact with your word and to apply it to our lives, to allow it to expose our need and then to respond to you as you would say that you would need, meet it, Lord, as we would allow your word to help us to make sense of our experience in the world around us, in the midst of all of that, would you draw us to you? That it would not be a substitute for meeting you soul to soul and face to face. You are a known God, and you want us to know you. And Lord, that's our heart's desire as well. So lead us in that week, that this week, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A couple action steps for you this week, and there's only two. Uh, the first is I want to encourage you to read through Psalm 119. That whole psalm is really an affirmation, a celebration of God's Word and what it does when we apply it to our lives. And then as you read that psalm, note the benefits of knowing and applying God's Word. Just make note of that and respond to that this week.